Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is an award-winning Zimbabwean author whose first novel, We Need New Names, was shortlisted for the 2013 Booker Prize. She was the first Zimbabwean and first black African woman to make the shortlist. Having grown up surrounded by the powerful storytelling of her father and grandmother, she studied English and creative writing in the US, and she's since taught creative writing at Stanford and Cornell universities. But it was when she returned to Zimbabwe after the 2017 coup that removed President Robert Mugabe that her long-awaited second novel began to take shape. Set in an animal kingdom called Jadada, Glory tells the story of dashed hope, corruption and greed following the fall of a dictator. It's satirical, sharp and funny, and it's already been met with huge critical acclaim. No, Violet Bulawayo, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you for having me. It's really, really lovely to have you here. Now, We Need New Names was your first huge success, but of course that brings us to talk about your own name, which is not, in fact, No Violet. Yes, um, my given name is Elizabeth Chele. Elizabeth after my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, who coincidentally is the person who inspired my love of story. And Chele, uh, that's my father's name. His family originally came from South Africa. But I decided uh, for personal reasons when I started creating to assume a name that meant something to me and hence no Violet. Violet after my mother who passed when I was uh, around 18 months. And Bulawayo after my beautiful, much missed, at least at that time, hometown. I had been in the U.S. for about 13 years without being able to go back home. So it was my way of staying connected to, to Zim. Mm. You were born in 1981, so that was a year after independence. And I think just for, for clarity's sake, I should say I was 13 at the time. Um, ah. But it does mean we've both lived through these things, albeit with completely different perspectives at the time, with different contexts behind it. Um, growing up, presumably your, your grandmother then was the one who raised you because your mother died so young. Um, I was raised by my, my aunt. My grandmother took over during the school holidays when we were all shipped to the uh, rural areas, like most children that I grew up around at the time. Mm. So she was a constant uh, presence in my in my childhood, yes. Mm. And so living in, in Bulawayo, in the Bel Air, and we, well, perhaps our listeners don't know, but there was a, a terrible tragedy in Matabililand, in Zimbabwe, in the early 80s. It's something we call Gurukahundi. Perhaps you'd talk a little bit more about that and how it affected your own family. The Kukurawundi was a wave of mass killings that took place in Matebeleland mostly and Manikaland between the years of 1983 up to 1987. It was carried out by a special North Korean trade branch of the National Army called the 5th Brigade. The operation was obviously meant to rid the nation of opposition even though it was sold as an operation that was targeting dissidents, former ex-combatants who supposedly threatened the newly 
independent nation stability following the war. We know now that it was part of the ruling parties and Robert Mugabe's architecture of a one party state. And we trace whatever Zimbabwe is going through now, especially in its treatment of the opposition to those early years, early formative years. And like most people in the region, I mean, you know, I had family who suffered, people were disappeared, people were brutalized. And uh, I mean, the sad part is that there has been no justice, no willingful and meaningful engagement by the government, at least in terms of giving the people some form of, you know, healing is definitely out of question. Acknowledgement that this thing happened, ownership, taking responsibility. And I was just talking to a friend about how the generation that actually carried out the atrocities are beginning to die out and that will leave an unsolved and problematic you know, this dilemma, this predicament mm. that happened in the past, but is very much part of our present and will be part of our future if not dealt with uh, properly. And how did it affect you as a small child? Were you aware of it? Obviously, in the beginning years, I wasn't aware of it. Of course, our lives were disrupted. You know, I but I remember toward the end of it, you know, being ferried by adults. My aunt who raised us would run with us, you know, during the night, ferrying us off to safety. We grew up at some point without adults. I remember my grandfather being hunted, you know. So those kinds of daily disruptions, you, you see them as disruptions as a child, but you don't understand the full scale of what happened until much later as an adult, realizing what your family went through they still don't openly talk about it. I remember hearing with horror what my own sister went through after I had written Glory, for instance, and I thought we were close, we shared everything, but except that. So, you know, there's this part of experiencing something in the past anew only because it was silenced, it was not talked about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You left Zimbabwe at 18. Uh, you went off to the States and We Need New Names was published in 2013. Did, I mean, incredibly well. I don't propose to talk about that here because, in fact, we've spoken about it before and people can go back through our archives, I think, to listen uh, to you speaking about that book. I want to concentrate on this next book because you were teaching at Stanford and then in 2017, you went back to Zimbabwe. Tell us what happened then. I went back to Zimbabwe because of the November 14 coup that ousted the only president I had known. Until that time, for me, it was a story that definitely grabbed my attention because it swamps up something that I never thought I would see in my lifetime. I went to a Zimbabwe of euphoria. I think people were really on a high. It's not to say that they did not realize the how complicated the moment was because Mugabe was obviously going to be replaced by his deputy. But I think having tried every possible way to be rid of him and having failed quite resoundingly, most 
had come to a point where they were willing to see him go at all costs. And of course, there were promises by the new leader to deliver a lot of what people had been crying for really over much of Mugabe's rule. So it was a, a, a period of hope, a period of, of optimism. But unfortunately, within a few months, it, it became quite apparent that the change that we had celebrated was no change at all. And it was around that time that I decided to switch what had begun as a nonfiction project into a work of fiction. The story just demanded a different way of, of telling it, and hence glory as it reads right now. Now, the person that took over is, in fact, the man who carried out Mugabe's orders and helped train those North Korean forces uh, during the Gurukhundi, during the massacre in the 1980s, Emerson Monongagwa. So I have always found it extraordinary that Zimbabweans thought it might turn out differently, that we could possibly have believed, and we did, you're right, we wanted it so badly, that we could have believed that this might have ended any other way. Absolutely. I mean, it was quite naive, especially when you look back at it. But then the question is, what what was the other option? What was the other choice, really, given that you are dealing with a system that has made it and that continues to make it clear that there is no space for anyone else? You know, I feel like in such situations, it's quite normal for people to to kind of hope against hope. At the very least, people felt like maybe, you know, we could turn some kind of corner. It was in the best case scenario, but maybe we could, our aspirations and wishes for a better Zimbabwe could somehow lead us somewhere. We could connect at some strange corner and go somewhere. Now, the way you've written about this is just masterful. Uh, Zimbabweans very active on social media, making frequent use of George Orwell's Animal Farm to discuss the political situation. It was something that started off in one of the independent newspapers years ago, and Zimbabweans have really adopted that. I think most Zimbabweans have now read Animal Farm. And you've kind of taken that, and you've you've got the wonderful, uh, the sort of imagery, the citizens of, of your made-up place, Jidada, and the old horse and his wife, Marvellous the Donkey, which, of course, are standing in for, for Magal and his wife, Grace, and just all of the different animals that have all these different roles. But I think it's really important to point out this is not just a rewrite of Animal Farm. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I like most writers, I draw inspiration from, from those who came before me or those that I'm writing with. And I'm really grateful that Animal Farm actually came at a time when I was desperately looking for a fresh way of telling what was becoming a very tired, a very public story. But I'd say that before Animal Farm, they were my grandmother's animal stories, you know, so that even when I read Animal Farm, I actually had my grandmother in that, in that voice, in that, in that book. You know, the challenge for me as a creative, as an artist was to use those influences, those two main influences to come up with my own thing that I hope while giving a nod to the original sources also stands on its own 
as its own invention, as its own creation. Mm. Uh, now, in Zimbabwe, most people have a totem, which is a, which is an animal that that stands in and is synonymous with a, a family name. Yes, that's correct. And I wonder just how much you you drew on that. Actually, not 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 actively, because I figured that would be complicated because our totems are not restricted to uh, to farm animals. Actually, I think they tend to be outside of yes. that category. I'm trying to think quite quickly if I know anybody with a totem that's a farm animal and I don't, I, I can't. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I actually decided to um, to just focus on, 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 on simple things because you can imagine if I'd opened it up to the animal kingdom as we know it with its sheer diversity and scale, it really was going to be hard to juggle all these miserable characters, you know, and be able to manage as an artist, but maybe in a separate uh, project somewhere. Mm. I mean, there's a ferocious pack of dogs, the Defenders. And of course, your your protagonist, your, your heroine, if you like, is Destiny, who's a goat. Tell us about her. Destiny, I, I consider the heart of the novel, really. Um, hers is a story of homecoming which was kind of important to me because in a setup like Jidada, I think we would expect somebody leaving, you know, leaving because the country has become unlivable. But she is coming back. Of course, she doesn't come out of will. She comes because exile has become impossible. The the world, wherever she tried to seek refuge, proves to be no refuge at all. So she is forced to go back to a home that she fled to confront past traumas, to confront a violent history, only to find her mother's own violent unspoken history. Talking about the the silence around Gugrahundi that I was uh, referring to even in my own family, she kind of shares that. So there is this moment where mother and daughter bond over over trauma, over the country's violent pasts. But even with that, it becomes this redemptive moment where destiny is actually able to connect with a past that she did not know that she had. But not only that, but also come to a space of finding a language with which to represent that past. She actually writes about her own story and her mother's story. And that process leads to a series of events that translate to Jidada actually sharing in that moment, but also channeling it toward their own freedom, something that they failed to do for the past four decades. Mm. We mentioned social media and you say, you write, uh, the country that was the real physical space in which Jadadans walked and lived and queued and suffered and got pained. And then there was the other country where Jadadans logged on and roared and raged and vented. You have two chapters that are just tweets. I thought it was extraordinary writing. Those really came from me wanting to acknowledge that for the most part, we're in a moment where a lot of people live at least two lives, the the real life in the physical world and then this life in the virtual world. What's important is what the virtual world can give to a space like Jidata, can give to a space like Zimbabwe, 
a space like the United States where, and so many others right now, I mean, the world seems to be in a perpetual state of turmoil, a space of resistance connecting with other people, uh, clarifying their struggle. And quite, you know, I'm thinking about how, especially the year 2018, the year of the Zimbabwean election that broke all our hearts, but that we should not have been surprised by 2019, how those years really translated onto social media, both in terms of people trying to organize, trying to resist, but also confronting what they could not confront on mm. the ground. And it was important for me to kind of make space for the role that social media was playing in our lives. And I thought chapters and twists were a good way to do that. And I found out that, you know, they actually allowed me what writing in in a traditional way would not allow, you know, the usual chapters, which was bringing in a multiplicity of voices, uh, handling the narrative engine very, very quickly, moving the story forward and, and all of that. So it was a joy to experiment with. Mm. And I mean, it really has changed Zimbabwe, the, the rise of the internet and social media. When when I was thrown out for, for starting this radio station, it was because that was the only way that people could communicate with each other and that news could get out. Now, of course, it's just not necessarily. And suddenly, Zimbabweans and indeed people all over the world where there hasn't been a kind of internet blackout have got access to information. And I think particularly for Zimbabweans, that's really changed things. It absolutely has changed thing. I mean, if you look at movements like this flag, for instance, I really was blown away by how people just took to the internet out of solidarity and to speak back, you know, to take back their power and to confront the regime. And uh, of course now, I mean, not just sharing information, but, but, but organizing, finding out what's going on. You know, our relatives in the rural areas are now better informed because people in the urban areas can share stuff with them over mm. over WhatsApp. We know that our government is not happy. Uh, if you look at the persecution of people like the novelist, the journalist, these are public figures, but, you know, who are doing a lot of work really, and I really applaud how they are weaponizing the internet, not just to share stories, but to also help us figure out the way forward. But what has happened to them, retribution tells us that the government is actually aware and uncomfortable at the thought of the power of of the internet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and those are just public figures. I mean, a lot of people whose names are not so famous are actually part of the resistance as well. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's inspiring to see. I think a lot of people here in the West are not sure why Zimbabwe is the way that it is. And I think there are a couple of points to be made here. One stage in the book, a former revolutionary is asked, what's the best thing about ruling? And he says wealth. And what's the hardest thing about ruling? He says spending it. So do you think that kleptocracy is really the biggest problem in Zimbabwe? Is that the engine that drives everything that's gone wrong? I think it's, it's it's that would be a bit simplistic. I mean, there are a lot a lot of factors. Colonial legacy for, for one, yeah. But in terms of uh, of absolutely. what's happening right now, do those in, who are in power stay in power because they're just making so much money? 
Absolutely, yes. Uh, that's a, a very big part of it, not just in Zimbabwe, unfortunately. I think the, the revolution, the African revolution has long reached the stage of, of self-cannibalizing. The liberator is in many ways outperforming the oppressors that he, he replaced. Of course, there is the, the entitlement to wealth, the greed, but there's also the, the violence, you know. It's something to, I'm sure, well, not I'm sure. I mean, it's a fact that corruption is all over the world, actually, including in the West. They are not the only ones, but the degree with which they have no limits and the neglect, their neglect of the other factors that would otherwise carry us forward, even if they were eating, just shows a leadership that is out of touch that does not care about the country. I mean, you can do your corruption and, 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 and be greedy, but what about the shrinking political space? What about your enduring refusal to carry out meaningful electoral reforms? What about your capture of state institutions and, and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. The other point that I think is about divisions. So in the book, you talk about, I'm not sure how you would pronounce this, indebelemals and shonamals, which are shona animals or indebele animals. And mm-hmm. you also, in your, in your forward to the book, acknowledge many Zimbabwean writers, including white Zimbabwean writers. And I just wondered how much the division, not only between black and white, but between different ethnic groups in Zimbabwe play into, into uh, what the country is now? I think they do play a, a part. They shouldn't because I really strongly believe that they are artificial divisions. I mean, the whole idea of the tribe, is, as we know it now, is really a colonial construct, mm. but people have ran with it. In a space like Zimbabwe, where something like the Gugurawundi happened, that kind of division can be weaponized, you know, to to separate people, to make people feel like, okay, this group of people is actually against us. This group of people actually killed us, which is really a very simplistic and not a true representation of, of the facts. That division can be weaponized to keep certain areas marginalized. I mean, it's not a secret that if you compare the Mashonaland regions of, of Zimbabwe to other regions, it's like a tale of different countries. I remember my first visit to the capital city, for instance, Harare, how shocked I was by the level of development. You know, it felt like I was coming from some miserable village. And uh, there's a chapter in Glory where animals are standing in line and just venting And part of what I actually hear when I visit home, I just spent the past five or six months at home, is how being Shona is a currency. And by that, I mean your access to to resources, whether it's jobs, whether it's scholarships. And some of these things we really grew up with and we just passively accepted. But... The thing is that we have a real problem with ethnicity. Mm. Um, it's not just being Shona, it's particularly being Zezuru. Yes, especially when it comes to, to leadership. I mean, I don't know how far true, but it does look like there is a chosen clan 
of people who are going to rule Zimbabwe. You know, you are told, oh, you hear that no other, no other person is ever going to rule. I don't know, but I, I think it's something that especially young people should be vigilant and find a way out of because it's a predicament that is really going to haunt us. I just want to pick up on a stylistic thing that you do. You use the refrain, and again, please correct my pronunciation, tolokuti, and that means only to discover. Just tell us about your use of that, because I thought it was so beautiful. Thank you. So I'm not going to confirm the meaning. It's one thing about glory that I've decided to stay out of. But obviously, I mean, people are going to come up with their own interpretations. For me, the engine that drives uh, the storytelling in glory is, is orator. And that refrain was an important way of signaling that to the, to the reader that, okay, this is a story that I imagine being told. And on another level, as somebody who juggles two languages, it's really important for me as a writer writing in 2022 to make space for my, for my language on the page alongside, alongside English, not only because it's, it's such an important part of how I write, how I create, but it's necessary, I think, to bring up the question of what, how we write, you know, because sometimes um, people forget when they read. I hope it's not always the case, but yeah, people forget that we come from other cultures as well and that do contribute to the work that we do. The book ends on a hopeful note. Are you personally hopeful for the future of Zimbabwe? I am hopeful. I have to be hopeful. And I really believe that nothing lasts, lasts forever. I believe that tyranny only lasts as long as we are willing to let it uh, for many different reasons and in a space like Zimbabwe because we are afraid and rightly so because we know that we are dealing with a violent machinery. We can go back to our history starting again in 83 to 87. We can go back, back to every violent election in Zimbabwe where people have been persecuted, tortured, beaten, some people losing their lives, that breeds that culture of fear. But what I'm trying to say in glory, especially in that ending, is that something can happen if people actually lose their fear. If people lose their fear, then the fear to have really nothing to stand on. And a new chapter change can actually be as simple as people just just deciding, you know what, we are no longer afraid, we are done. And the animals in glory actually do that. And change comes so quickly that they didn't even imagine it would be that easy. No, Violet Bulawayo, I so hope you're right. Glory is published by Chatto. It's out now. And you've been listening to Meet the Writers. Thanks to the production team of Nora Hole and Lillian Fawcett. And you could download this show and previous episodes from our website or app from SoundCloud, Mixcloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.